0: This morning's text comes from Mark, chapter 4, verses 21 through 34, page 1067 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. And it said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable should we use, shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We keep your
1: Bibles open to Mark chapter 4. we look at the text, though, I want you to think back. This may not be too hard for some of the kids in the room, but for those of us that might be a little older, well, we may have a little more work to do, but think back, if you will, all the way to kindergarten. Five years old. As you're in kindergarten, think about when it was your turn to participate in show and tell. Do you remember... That, do you remember that experience of getting to bring something to class to show your classmates? Maybe you even remember what you brought as a kid. I don't. I don't remember, but you may have some funny stories about what you brought or what a classmate may have brought to show the class. Well, our three parables this morning, we're covering, as you heard uh, Jay read for us, three parables this morning in the text. And the first one teaches us a little bit, Jesus is showing us a little bit about what it means to do some show and tell. In your kindergarten class, your teacher probably told you to bring something that your classmates didn't know about you or something that would surprise them. And so uh, you were supposed to bring something that had meaning to you or something that was important in your life and explain it to them and show them what it is and share it with them. In the same way, I think Christ is showing us in the text this morning that God has called us as Christians to do some show and tell. In the same way, we have something Someone that is important to us. Someone that has more meaning for our lives than anything else in our lives. And there are many people around us that, like in kindergarten, don't know him. They've never experienced the goodness of Christ. They've never tasted and seen the goodness of the gospel. And, of course, I'm talking about Christ being that one that we would show and tell and put on display for those around us to see and know and and come to learn about that's what Mark's doing in this section. He's repeating the words of Christ. He's demonstrating this, this teaching for us that Jesus has been doing. But that's also what Mark's been doing in the rest of his gospel. From the time that Mark began, uh, that's what Mark's been doing. He's been showing and telling us about Christ. And a bit of a recap in case you haven't been with us in a while. Mark begins, unlike the rest of the gospels, we, we, we have no birth narrative there. There's just an adult Christ, an adult Jesus. And Jesus begins by teaching Uh, He's teaching in a way, having an authority unlike that that was ever seen in that day. He's doing miracles. He's healing folks, casting out demons. And as Mark begins to show us this picture of Christ, we see different responses to Jesus. Varied responses uh, from those that would follow him and and leave everything, jobs, security of home, and follow after Christ to those that are conspiring against Christ, the Pharisees and the Herodians who literally want to destroy Jesus. And you have everything in between. You have his family members, his relatives that think he's crazy, that think he's lost his mind. And that he doesn't understand who he is or his mission. You have those that are simply wanting to abuse Christ for what they can receive from him. They're following him. They're interested in him. But it's clear that they're only there. The masses, the crowds are only there for what they can get from him. And so last week, as this question begins to come up, I think probably even in the disciples' own minds. Jesus, why is it that as you preach... The same message is being heard, but there's varied responses. There's different responses to you in the way that uh, people hear the message. Some are willing to kill you and some are willing to follow you. How can that be so? And so last week we saw a parable, the parable of the souls, where Jesus explains that the human heart, like these differing soils, received the word differently. And that uh, gives the response. That spurs on the response that you see taking place in the Gospel of Mark. Some are receptive and they receive it and they produce fruit, yet others are not. And so this week we have, from Mark, three more parables that deal with the kingdom of God. That's ultimately what Jesus was teaching us about last week, and that kingdom idea continues with three more parables. Jesus has said that the kingdom has come near. We see that in the first chapter of Mark. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? Well, this morning, three parables for us, three lessons that Christ would teach us about the kingdom of God. So number one. First parable. The light of Jesus will not be hidden. The light of Jesus will not be hidden. Look at verses 21 through 25 with me again. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I think the parable is pretty straightforward that Jesus gives them on this day. He's talking about lamps, and you don't put lamps under a a bowl or a basket or under a bed. You don't do that. None of us in this room would have a lamp under our beds. That just doesn't make sense, and it wouldn't have made sense in that day either, and so it's, it's likely, as they hear Jesus teach this, the, the purpose of a lamp, as it's clear to us, was clear to them. They knew you didn't put a lamp under the bed. And so it's probably not too many people in this crowd on this day that are confused or arguing or debating with Jesus over this truth. You don't put a lamp under a basket or under a bed. That's simple enough to understand. But the application of this truth probably had folks scratching their head. I mean, you can imagine as they're, as they're sitting there and hearing Jesus teach, none of them are like, mm, man, Jesus, Jesus is really teaching some profound stuff about lamps today. Can you all imagine the lamp under the bed? No, they're, they're, they're not thinking he's literally talking about a lamp here. They know there's some spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching, and that part of it had them probably a little bit confused. So what does Jesus mean? He, what is he talking about lamps and beds and baskets for? I think this goes back to the point that we saw last week. Why Jesus would even teach in parables. We saw this as he concluded the parable last week. Parables were meant to simultaneously reveal truth to those that are receiving, believing the truth. At the same time, it clouds truth or hides truth from those that are rejecting. That's what's going on here. He continues in these parables for this purpose. So what is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus talking about as he talks about a lamp and baskets and beds? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his mission, the kingdom that he's come to establish and see come to consummation. Jesus is talking about himself being the son of God, the light of the world. And this is not a new concept. The other gospels also use this language of Jesus being a light. In John's gospel, as he records uh, the account of Jesus. He says in John 12, 46 that he's come as a light into the world. John 1.4, he is the light of men. John 1.9, he is the true light. John 8.12, he is the light of the world. And so this is not an uncommon thing for Jesus to be calling himself the light, or for the Gospels, for that, fact, for that matter, uh, calling Jesus the light, comparing him to being a lamp or a light. And then verse 22, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Jesus is talking about himself. He's calling himself a lamp, a light. Specifically, I think Jesus is talking about here, the progressive unveiling of his kingdom. The progressive unveiling of the light of Christ and how that would continue to grow and be made known to the world. If you think about it, it was not his plan to come and speak plainly about his identity from the beginning. If he had, it would put, they would have put him to death much sooner. These religious leaders would have had him crucified much sooner. No, it was, it was his plan that... He would begin to show who who he is and wait until perfectly right timing was there to to really demonstrate and display who he is. So he waits until the disciples are trained and sent out. We'll see that in Mark chapter 6. He waits until he had completed the ministry, the miracles, the teaching that God had sent him for. He tarries with patience. And so even in the text that we've already seen, when the demons begin to rightly, by the way, confess that he is the Son of God, which is the truth, from demons, he hushes them, he silences them. He makes them so they can't speak. And so even his disciples, who he has revealed himself to, he's doing so slowly over a period of time. He doesn't immediately tell them everything. He begins to show them and demonstrate through his teaching who he is. But then once Christ sets his face to the cross, once Christ begins and turns towards Jerusalem, you see this teaching become much more clear. He begins to plainly and, and, and speak as clearly as possible about who he is. So you have scenes like the upper room where it's clear that Jesus is God's Messiah. And he's describing exactly what he came to do, that he would die for sins. He would be the sacrifice. During his trial, they ask him if he's God. And he, it is as you say. There's no denying, there's, there's no more revealing or covering up, clouding who he is. But then when he dies and he's raised from the dead, once Jesus is resurrected, there is absolutely no reason to keep it a secret any longer who he is. There's no reason. in fact, it's wrong or even hateful for us to keep the truth of who Jesus is a secret or to ourselves. Even now, though, Sadly, even in the world that we live in, years after Christ has been raised, there are many who do not know who Christ is. It is a secret to them. There are many parts of the world that don't have the gospel. And so the light of Christ is not shining. But friends, one day when he returns, when he comes again, he will not come as a baby in a manger. He will not come as some peasant child. He'll return as the king in all his glory. And there will be no doubt The Bible actually says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the light of the world. And so you see this even in this parable. This parable of the lamp speaks of the progressive unveiling, the progressive revealing of who Christ is. He came and he taught, but then he taught more clearly as he began to go towards the cross. But then once he's died and raised, he, he, he proclaims and he even teaches on the Maus Road how all of Scripture is pointing to him. He shows up to his disciples, and then he sends them out with the gospel message. And friends, when he comes again, there'll be no doubt. Every person on the face of this planet will know that he is the light of the world, the king of all kings. So how do we respond to this extraordinary lamp, this incredible light? We show and tell. We show and tell. Look at verse 21. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Friends, just as it makes no sense to put a lamp under a bed, it makes no sense to keep Jesus to ourselves. As Christians, we've been called to be witnesses unto Christ. What he's called us into is his kingdom. And we should be telling everyone we come into contact about that. Like a light. It needs to be seen by a desperate world. Jesus should be put on pedestals in our hearts, in our lives, our weeks, in our daily conversations so that it penetrates the darkness around us. Anyone can see the darkness that this world is coming to. The darkness that surrounds us in culture and in our communities even. Even small rural communities around the world. Jesus Christ has called us to put him on a pedestal so that he would penetrate the darkness. And we do this as we talk about him, as we live our lives like him. So how do we respond to this lamp? Well, we show and tell. We tell others about him. We put him on display. We show Christ. But we also listen to him like life depends on it. Look at verse 23. If anyone, who has, any, if anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We dealt with this last week in our text, and so we won't spend a lot of time here. But the Bible is making it clear to us. Mark, Christ himself, making it clear to us two weeks in a row that we're not, allowed, not to allow the Word of God to go in one ear and out the other. That we're to be hearers of the Word and doers of the Word. That as we receive the Word, we listen to the truth of God's Word. We let God's word d- dwell richly in our hearts. And we take heed when God's word says something that we would obey. So we listen to his word like life depends on it. Second parable. God's kingdom will not be a dud. God's kingdom will not be a dud. Do you know what a dud is? Or is that like a Louisiana thing? I, I don't want to miss anybody this morning. I sometimes you miss things culturally. In case you do, I, I looked it up in Webster's. It's actually in Webster's Dictionary. So a dud is a thing that fails to work properly or is otherwise unsatisfactory. That's a dud. So when Jess and I, Jess and I just got married, they, uh, they threw a, a wedding shower for us, and we got all these gifts, and had the whole floor was covered in kitchen appliances and towels and things that you would get as a wedding shower gift. And we started unboxing these gifts and looking at all the stuff we got. And we went through all of them. We're so excited. We had a a kitchen full of, like, cooking things. And we didn't know anything about cooking, but we had the stuff to do it with. And we began to put them into the pantry, into the closet, into the uh, places where they go. And uh, a year down the road, we're needing a a food processor for something. (laughs) Hey, didn't we get a food processor? Yeah, I think it's in the pantry. So we pull it out. We plug it in. We put the food in it. And nothing. It doesn't work. And now, because it's a year later and we've thrown all the boxes away, we now have a food processor that's a dud. It doesn't perform satisfactorily, and we can't do anything with it, right? So that's what a dud is. It's something that doesn't work. It doesn't perform. God's kingdom will not be a dud. Look at verse 26 with me. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. The earth produces it by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here we have Mark's only unique parable in his gospel. The other parables that we've read, the one last week and the other two from today, they're all in the other gospels. They show up in Matthew, Mark, Luke's accounts. This one's not. This one's unique to Mark. It's the second time that Mark has told us about sowing seeds. We saw it last week. Last week we saw the necessity of sowing seeds and the receptivity of different soils. The heart, the human heart, receiving the word differently. That was the point last week. That we should be sowers of the word and we'll see different results as we sow the word. This week, the parable focuses on the innate power of the word. It's different in focus. This week we see this seed, the word, has within itself itself. The power of its own success and triumph. The seed itself is what has the power. So we should let the word loose and let it perform miracles. That's the idea in the text here. It's the seed that has the power. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preachers that ever lived, believed in the power of the Bible, believed in the power of God's word to perform miracles. And he said this, and I'll just it's a it's a lengthier paragraph, but it's really good. And so listen to what Spurgeon said concerning the word of God. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. And no doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are a lot of books of that kind, defending the gospel, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads, that they were to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. And there he is in his cage. And here come all the soldiers of the army ready to fight for and defend the lion. Well, I should suggest to them that they should kindly just stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. He would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind defending Deuteronomy and the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion, the tribe of Judah, will soon drive away all his adversaries. Oh, church family, that we would have that kind of confidence in the power of the Word of God. That we would believe the Scriptures, but not only believe them, but believe the power and authority that they have for our lives. Poplar Spring, we must be a people that believe in the power of the Word, the Bible, the, the Gospel. So the question is do we trust the Word of God like that? Do we trust God's Word more than our own judgments? Do we trust God's Word, the Scriptures, when we're making decisions that affect our lives? Do we seek the counsel of God through his scriptures before we go and make decisions? If we do, it's evidence that we're trusting in his power, the power of his word. This parable teaches us about the nature of that kingdom and a few things that are coming with this kingdom that will not be a dud, this kingdom that will come about. First thing I think we see is that we must plant the seeds. This comes over from last week. We saw this as an application of of the parable last week. I think we see it here as well. The most basic step when you're gardening is planting seeds. You leave out this step, and no matter what else you do, you don't have a harvest. I mean, think about this. I mean, just imagine with me a, a farmer or a gardener that has prepared the ground. They've tilled the soil, they've plowed the soil, and they've prepped it for a garden. And they, they ne- never actually plant any seeds or any young plants, but they go out, he goes out every day. And he, he sows fertilizer, he sows pest controls, he waters the garden, he waters the soil, but it's empty soil. And he doesn't see any results, and so he goes back and he works twice as hard, night and day. He's out there with a spotlight, and he's, he's pulling weeds, and he's putting out more fertilizer, he's putting out more pest control, and he's watering his garden, and no results. That would be silly. We couldn't imagine someone going through that knowing that they have no seeds out in the soil. There's no expectation for growth because there's no seed. And so we must evaluate our lives, our ministries, our workplace relationships. If we're not seeing our friends, our neighbors, our relatives come to faith in Christ, then we must ask, are we planting the seed? Is the gospel being sown? Is there opportunity for a harvest for those that were around to come to know Christ? If there's no seed, then we can't expect that that's going to happen. We must be sowers of the word. We must plant seeds. Second thing I think we see in this parable is that God, and God alone, makes his kingdom to grow. Watch how this parable shifts. Yes, we should plant seeds, but then look at the rest of the parable. Look at verse 27. He sleeps, and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces it by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. God is the one who makes it to grow. The man at this point in the parable, the one who's sown the seed, is completely passive. He's doing nothing. In fact, if you read the text, he's sleeping. That's the most passive thing he could be doing. He's not even aware. He's completely asleep. And the coming of the kingdom will not be a dud, friends. God's kingdom will not be a dud. Why? Because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on me or you. God's word is active and alive, Hebrews 4.12 says. His word is powerful, John 23, 29 says. Romans 1, 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. There's a word here in the Greek in verse 28. The word automate. It should sound familiar to us. Automatically. Automatically, the earth bears fruit, yields fruit. The growth of the kingdom, friends, listen to me. The growth of God's kingdom is more certain than you or I sitting here today. Why? Because God is the one who's bringing it about. And in fact, once it started, and I think that's what we see here in the text, once it started, which it has been, Jesus has said, the kingdom of God has come near. Once it started, you see this this cycle in the text. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear, then the harvest, the sickle. Once it started, this is a language of completion. God's kingdom has started and it will come to fruition. It will come to completion. God will make his kingdom grow. Third thing I think we see here in this parable is that because it's certain, because it won't be a dud, we must be patient. God did not design his kingdom to be like a tidal wave or a bolt of lightning that just shows up immediately and then it's gone. It disappears. No, God planted uh, this this seed, this soul, this, this coming of his kingdom in a Galilean peasant, a homeless man from Nazareth who was surrounded by disciples, a bunch of nobodies that were fishermen and and tax collectors and political zealots, a bunch of nobodies that would bring this seed, this gospel, this word to the world. And yet this kingdom is a mystery, but it is certain. There are things we're not fully understanding about this kingdom, but it is going to come about. That's for sure. And so I think there's a word of encouragement in that for us, church family. And that if you're discouraged because you've been sowing, you've you've been faithful to share the gospel, your family knows where you stand on the word of God, they know you're a believer, know you're a Christian, you've shared the gospel with them, and you're still seeing no fruit, you're still seeing no harvest, sometimes with seeds, as with the gospel, it may look like nothing's happening. You may get discouraged because you feel like nothing is taking place. But as with seeds... That's because we can't see what's happening beneath the soil. That's because we can't see what's happening with that seed all the time and give it time. Continue to pray to the one who brings about the harvest. Continue to sow and be faithful to what he's called you to. He'll provide a harvest. He's the one who's faithful to grow his kingdom. So because it's certain, we must be patient. We must wait on him, the one who brings about the harvest. Because it's certain, we must make sure we're a part of it. I think that's an application of this parable. Because we know that God's kingdom will not be a dud, we must be sure that we're a part of this kingdom. Verse 29, when the harvest is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The sickle in Scripture is oftentimes a symbol for the culmination of the kingdom, the completion of the kingdom, and the judgment that will follow. Revelation 14, verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, Calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Friends, listen the kingdom will grow until there are people in it from every nation, tribe, and tongue, but then the end will come. And friends, we can't be mistaken about this the end will come. He said it is going to come. And as he said with all other prophecies that came to fruition and that we see the completion of, this one will come about as well. The end is coming and there will be a judgment. The day of the sickle is coming. So because this is certain, we can't be foolish and ignore the question, are we a part of this kingdom? Are we a part of this king's kingdom? I think that's an application from this text. Third parable. Number three, God's kingdom will not only not be a dud, and not only will Jesus uh, has to be seen, he he will not be hidden. Number three, God's kingdom will not stay small. God's kingdom will not stay small. Look at uh, verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. I think This final parable is clear that it revolves around a single tiny seed. We've seen seeds be the, the, the topic of several of these now in two of these parables. And this is the smallest of the seeds that were known in Palestine. They had a reputation for their Minuscule size. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 17, verse 20, uses the mustard seed again in his teaching. And this time in Matthew 17, he's teaching about the the minimal quantity of faith to move mountains. You remember the text, the teaching of Jesus. Here, Jesus is using this mustard seed again. Except for this time, he's talking about the microscopic size of this mustard seed compared to the mature mustard seed bush uh, and its enormous size. So this is something that Jesus is showing us that when uh, produced and brought to maturity, this bush is completely out of proportion to itself as it's a small seed in a similar way. I think this is the the connection. This is the the teaching, the spiritual truth of the parable that God's kingdom is birthed and it's small. It has a meager beginning, but it will expand and it'll grow for the whole world to see. That not only is it sure to come, but it's sure to come in growth and and, and it will exponentially grow until the whole world has an opportunity to see this kingdom. You can imagine the disciples as they're following Jesus and he's talking about this kingdom. He said that the, the kingdom of God has come near. And you can imagine them sitting around talking. This should be a pretty big deal, right? Like Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come near. We should be seeing incredible signs of that. We should be seeing that this is a big deal that the kingdom has come near. But when they look around, what do they see? They see a bunch of unschooled, untrained fishermen that are following this homeless guy from Nazareth. And they see a bunch of religious leaders that want to destroy and kill Jesus. They see the Roman armies and its legions of soldiers. And if, if the kingdom of God has come near and this is what it's up against, you can imagine how discouraged they must have felt. They're just a band of, of fishermen. And this is Rome's army. How are we going to overthrow that? That's how God intended it. It would start small. Think about Paul's words to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Think of Jesus' own words to his group of ragtag disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's kingdom, friends, had a small and humble beginning, but it will grow surprisingly large. And we see this in the worldwide spread of the gospel, that these 12 faithful men, these 12 untrained uh, fishermen and, and tax collectors and zealots, they, these 12 men spread this gospel, this word, to every continent on the earth. And because of them, it has global expansion. And yes, there are unreached peoples. And yes, there are folks in this world today that do not know the gospel. They've never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. They don't have access to the Bible, to the word of God. His kingdom will continue to advance and grow. Unlike Christ's first uh, coming, when he returns, all the earth will observe that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All the earth will witness that Christ's kingdom surpasses all kingdoms on the earth. In glory and in power and in majesty, his kingdom is bigger and larger and more enormous than any any kingdom that's ever been uh, in power upon the face of this earth. And that's an encouraging thought. Not just for us today, but think about those that that feel like they're laboring in vain. For those that feel they've been faithful to sow the seed. They've been faithful to share the gospel and they're seeing no fruit of it. Think about those that have endured rejection day after day. Those that have endured persecution. Think of Pastor Brunson, illegally imprisoned right now for sharing the gospel, for sharing his faith. Those that endure martyrdom are literally killed for the sake of the gospel. This is an encouraging word that, yes, it starts small. It started with 12 guys and, and, a, and a king that is king of all kings. But, friends, it will grow into the point where it will be a part of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you, some of you guys know that I'm a church history nerd. I try to hide that as best as I can. But I can't help but to think of some of those missionaries that have gone on before us. William Carey, father of the modern missionary movement, lived in England in the 18th century. He was a shoemaker, a cobbler, and he taught school, and he was a pastor, had three jobs just so that he could feed his kids. And he begins to be burdened about the nations that don't know Christ, about countries of people, millions of people that don't know Christ and have no access to the gospel. He begins to be burdened over this, and so he puts together a plan and a strategy. That's why he's known as the father of the modern missionary movement. He's kind of the first guy that comes up with this global plan to take the gospel to peoples that never heard it. And he sent out as the first English-speaking missionary to another country. He goes to India. He labors there for seven years, seven years trying to learn the language so that he can preach the gospel. In those first few years, or first year, he loses his son to a disease. His kids are starving to death. His wife literally goes insane, loses her mind. And he continues to labor. He continues to try to translate the Bible and learn the language so that he can preach. And seven years go by before he sees his first convert professing faith in Christ. He spends 40 years there, never returning home to England. He gives his life literally for the proclamation of the gospel to a people that don't know it. Certainly it starts out small. But he labors and it's slow. There's no immediate fruit. But the kingdom, like this mustard seed, starts out tiny, but he knows that one day it'll be seen all over the world. That's why Carrie can say the future is as bright as the promise of God as he's dying. He's literally given everything he has to the gospel. He can say expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Adoniram Judson, in the same way, living at the same time, labored in Burma for seven years before, again, seeing his first convert. And he would die disappointed. He would die that he had spent this time in these labors and it hadn't yielded more fruit. Yet he was faithful because he knew, like this parable is teaching, that though the kingdom starts small, it will grow and become gloriously enormous. And that's why he can say, again, as he's dying, in spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course will be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plains and we reap on Zion's hill. So if you feel discouraged this morning, if you feel as though you've been laboring and you've been sowing and you've been faithful to share the gospel, but you're seeing no results, you're looking at your small part in God's plan and you feel that you're not reaching anybody, take confidence in this, that God will see his kingdom through and that it is sure. And not only is it sure to come about, but it's sure to be a, a part of every continent and every planet, or every country on this planet. And then you have verse 32. And we should take incredible encouragement in Verse 32. It's talking about this mature plant, this bush with these large branches that can provide a nest. It says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. There are different opinions about what this means if you read different commentaries. I think after studying it and seeing the different uh, understandings of it, I believe that these birds are a reference to the nations coming to Christ. If you think about what this parable is teaching, it aligns with the primary focus that the growth and the expansive nature of God's kingdom, the increasing nature of God's kingdom, reaching every people, nation, and tongue. Psalm 104, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31, Daniel 4 all use this image of a tree, a nest, a branch to describe nations, the nations of people. And so if you take that interpretation and what Jesus is saying here in his final thought, in this parable, is that when his kingdom is complete, there will be, we can rest assured, there will be people from every country, every nation, tribe, and tongue. We see that in Revelation 7 as well, when John is given this picture of the throne room scene through Revelation. So not only is the growth of his kingdom certain, not only will his kingdom go from tiny to large, it will be comprised of every people's. Don't you want to be a part of that? Isn't that something that we should leverage our lives for? Isn't that something we should be willing to give our lives to? Making this gospel known to people that have no access to it. And then you have this closing statement in verse 33. And with, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And as they, were, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a, par- a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. We have this explanation again for Jesus' use of parables. We've seen this now three times. At least 39 parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. On this occasion, Jesus is not saying anything, the text says, without saying it to them in a parable. This is important to, church, to Jesus. He used these stories from everyday life to teach these important truths of the kingdom. And not everyone understood. Even his own disciples, we see, needed some explanation after they left. Jesus, what did this mean? We, don't, we weren't following you. We didn't get it. But for the 10th time, the 10th time in Mark 4, Jesus has said and Mark has recorded Jesus emphasizing the importance of hearing and receiving, hearing and listening. So if it's important enough for Jesus to say ten times, don't you think it's important enough for us to hear today that we should listen and heed the word of God? That's what Jesus is emphasizing to us. This parable of the lamp teaches us that Jesus will be seen and that he's worth us sharing. The parable of the, the growing seed teaches us that God is the one who makes his kingdom grow, not us. And that we should have confidence in him. The parable of the mustard seed teaches us that God's kingdom starts small, but it will come, but grow to amazingly large size compared to its beginning. I think all of these parables are teaching us not to be discouraged, to take great hope in Christ and what he's called us to do, that we must continue to work and pray for the advance of the gospel in our community in Bun and around the world. So as we conclude, let me ask you a few questions as we apply the text. How's your witness for Christ? How's our witness, Poplar Spring? Does your family and friends, do they know that you're a Christian? Have you shared the gospel with them? Have you shared what you believe about the word of God with them? Do you have a clear testimony for Christ? Or are you hiding Jesus under your bed, figuratively? Do we have a clear testimony? How Are we a witness for Christ? We need to put Christ on the pedestal of our lives. Second question, how much of your life are you investing in God's Word? Do you read His Word? Do you study His Word? Are you in personal and group Bible study so that you can grow in your knowledge of God's Word? How much are you clinging to His Word? Third question, are you sowing the Word? Are you sowing the Gospel? The text shows us that this man sowed and, and then, he, then, he, then he fell asleep and he, he trusted that God would bring about a harvest. And I think some of us have it backwards. Some of us are sleeping when we should be sowing. So this morning, and just I think the question for us in the text is have you told someone about Jesus this week? And are you trusting God with the results? Are you placing your confidence for, for your life and ministry, for your goals, for your dreams for your family? Are you trusting and trusting them to Him and to His Word? He'll use you for His glory, He'll use you for His kingdom's sake, and we are to leave the results up to Him. I pray that we would be faithful in that this week, Poplar Spring. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these three parables about your kingdom. And God, I pray that we would search and ask the question this morning, are we a part of this kingdom? Have we given our lives to you? Are we following you? Are we disciples of Christ? And then, Father, once we know that answer, we would ask these questions of the text. Are we being faithful to sow? Are we being faithful to devote ourselves to the word? And so, God, we give you this time as we respond by singing. God, would you, by your spirit, impress upon our hearts where we're at, where we fall, where we're doing okay, where we need to grow, where we need to be changed, where we have sin in our life that needs to be confessed. Father, would you draw us to yourself this morning? It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.